Psalm 26 tonight. It's another fantastic psalm, as they all are. It's another psalm of David. We see that often. And this title is very simply put, a psalm of David. You could say that it's a prayer of examination. You could say that it's a prayer of redemption. That could, in fact, be the theme, really, of this entire psalm is examination and redemption. Or if we were to contrast this psalm with Psalm 25, which was really about faithfully waiting on God, then we could say that Psalm 26 is about faithfully walking with God. So we see a bit of a contrast here as well. But David begins this psalm with a request to the Lord to vindicate him. So let me read it out loud and then we'll get into it verse by verse. Psalm 26, starting in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with the hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place in the congregations. I will bless the Lord. So what a great psalm. Again, David begins with his request for the Lord to vindicate him. That word means to judge. The Hebrew word is shafat. It just means to judge. But then in verse 2, David asked the Lord to examine him or to prove him. And the words here mean to test and to try. So a little different. But David appears to have been falsely accused here, at least as if you read between the lines a little bit, it seems like he feels like he's been falsely accused. Maybe of hanging out with or associating with the wrong people. We can kind of see that in verses 4 and 5. Or maybe he was accused of taking a bribe. We could kind of see that in Psalm or verse 10, rather, maybe. But whatever the issue was, David was pleading for his innocence here before men. He was not proclaiming his sinlessness before God. That's not what he's saying. And we know this because we see him plead for redemption. We see him plead for mercy down in verse 11. So he's just simply saying that I'm not guilty of the things that I'm being accused of right here. Okay? That makes me think of who else was falsely accused, right, based on the company that he kept. Of course, we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13 says, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And of course, Jesus was quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. 
He says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so David was very similar to Christ in that he had false accusations made against him. However, his approach to the wicked, to the idolatrous, to the hypocrites, people like that was very, very different. Right? David would not even sit with them at all, but Jesus had dinner with them. You see, David knew that he himself needed redeeming. He knew that he himself needed mercy, and he knew where to find it. David put his trust in the Lord. We see that in verse 1. But Christ, of course, well, he knew something different. He knew that everyone needed redemption. He knew that everyone needed mercy. And so he goes to those people who are sinners, for sure, absolutely, but haven't yet consumed themselves in self-righteousness and legalistic sacrifice, just like the Pharisees had already done. Jesus hung out with the people who are, were identified by their own culture as sinners, right? Jesus called them by a different name, though. He called them sick. That's how he described them. And by doing this, he was able to show this religious crowd, the Pharisees, namely, that, were in, that they were, in fact, sick, too. In other words, what he's saying is, these people I'm sitting with are not the only ones who are sick, right? God's desire has always been for mercy and not sacrifice. That's his desire. Again, Hosea 6, chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God's always desired mercy over sacrifice. God wants us to know him. He wants to be known. That's God's desire. He doesn't want us to perform just a bunch of mindless rituals. Not at all. He wants us to know him. And so David knew exactly where to find God. David went to the temple, the very place where God's glory dwelt. Verse 8. And now the beauty of what Jesus did is that he brought the temple, so to speak, to the, to the sinners. Right? David went to the temple. Jesus brought the temple, so to speak, to the sinners because he is, in fact, the true temple, according to John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so now as we look at the world around us, the world that we live in, and we see hurting people that are sick with sin then we shouldn't hesitate to bring the gospel to them because in a sense, what we're doing is exactly what Jesus did, right? We're bringing God to them. People need to know that God came to us, okay? And he told us that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. That's what he desires. And the mercy that he desires to give is for each and every one of us. From the most legalistic Pharisee to the most dishonest tax collector. Okay? It's for those new people that come into the church. Okay? It's for your coworker. It's for your neighbor. It's for the person whose personality just drives you straight up a wall. It's for all of us. We all need mercy. We all need redemption. David said later on in this psalm when he wrapped it up, he wrapped his prayer up by saying, My foot stands in an even place. That's verse 12. So what we learn is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And all who come to Christ by faith will in fact find mercy there. Let's go back up to verse 1. David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. 
I shall not slip. And so David's asking for vindication from the Lord. Okay, again, not because he is sinless, but because he's innocent before man and these apparent false accusations that have been flying around. Of course, as we look at David as a type of Christ, which often happens in the Psalms, we can see through the eyes of prophecy here too that only Jesus was completely innocent of all sin. Okay, but David pleads here that he's kept his integrity before men because of his trust in the Lord. And I think this is important for us to understand here because David realizes that the only thing, the only thing that kept him from slipping was his faith in the Lord. And we can see from this verse here that David's faith was a faith that was very visible. Okay, David walked in his integrity, the word says. Other people could see his faith. His trust in the Lord was manifested by his walk with the Lord, so to speak. And we talked last week about how often or how oftentimes it requires more faith to actually wait on the Lord than it does to do something. Sometimes it requires more faith just to wait. And I think that's absolutely true. But there's also many, many times in our life where we're going to find out that faith actually takes steps. Faith requires us to take a step. It requires us to walk or to trust. And by God's grace, we won't slip. Verse 2, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Now, this right here is a very, very bold prayer. But I think it's one that every Christian should pray. We should pray prayers like this. David's not asking God to just declare him innocent based on his actions, right? No, he's not doing that at all. He's not trying to get off on a technicality or find a loophole that might let him escape conviction or whatever from these accusations that are apparently being leveled against him. He's not doing that at all. He's asking God to look into his heart and to look into his mind, right? So David is saying, Lord, I want you to check my motives. I want you to check the intent of my heart. That's what I'm asking you to do, Lord, to check my motives and my intent. It's like this. It's like the little boy who got in trouble by his parents for hitting his sister. Think of it like that. When the parents asked him, you know, why do you keep hitting your sister after we've already told you time and time again to stop hitting your sister? And then the boy replies, no, that's not what you said. You said stop hitting her in the face. I didn't hit her in the face. I hit her in the stomach, right? The intent of the boy was to disobey his parents, okay, and keep on hitting his sister. David's intent was to walk upright before the Lord. His intent was not to get away with something, right, to slip aside on a technicality or whatever. That's legalism. David is saying, Lord, check the intent of my heart. Okay, that's what I'm asking you to do. Check my motives. Here's how he did it. Verse 3, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. This is how David walked. And I have walked in your truth. And it just made me think, you know, when all you can see is God's love, I mean, when that right there is your focus, God's loving kindness then I think your walk is going to be true. You know, that's going to help us to stay on the path and to have a true walk, to be able to walk in the truth of God when our eyes are up on His loving kindness. The false accusations, they're going to pale in comparison. 
Okay, the temptation to fight back and defend yourself against these accusations, all that's going to go away because a clean heart and a clear mind before the Lord, verse 2, will lead to a constant walk with the Lord, verse 3. Okay, the word for truth here, it means faithfulness, it means sureness, stability, it also means continuance. So if you want to be faithful in your walk with Christ, if you want it to be stable, if you want it to continue, then focus on God's loving kindness. That's where your eyes should be. Spurgeon said this, Each of you, when you get dull and flagging in the practical part of your religion, that's an interesting way to put that, but it's true. He says that the proper way to revive it is to think more uh, is to think more than you have done upon the loving kindness of God. In other words, he's saying maybe you've gotten your eyes off of God's love. And maybe that's why your walk has become stale. And so think about that. The next time you feel a little off in your walk, for example, get your eyes back on the loving kindness of God. David's eyes were fixed on God's loving kindness, even in the midst of trouble and most likely false accusations. But his thoughts and his motives were very, very pure. He trusted God as he walked and then he focused on his love, not on the words of these wicked people and their accusations. Okay, It's easy for us to become jaded by the world around us. It's easy for us to become jaded by all of the terrible news that we always hear. So we've got to be careful here. And what we learn from this is that the eyes of faith give us steady feet. So keep walking. Keep walking by faith. It's going to steady your feet. It's going to help your eyes to remain squarely on God's love. So keep looking at the love of God and keep walking by faith. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 together. I have not set with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So David here is proclaiming his separateness from the world. Okay, He's not proclaiming to be righteous or self-righteous. No, he's proclaiming his separateness. As believers in Jesus Christ, we know that we are in the world, but we're not of the world, right? Jesus said in John 17, 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And the apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, when he was quoting actually from Isaiah 52, 11, he said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. That's what God is telling us to do. So again, David is saying, I'm walking by faith in the ways of the Lord, not in the ways of of the world. I'm separate. Verses 4 and 5 remind me a lot of Psalm chapter 1 verse 1, which says, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful." David is saying, "Look, I haven't done any of that." Okay? That's not what I'm doing. I have set myself apart. I've separated myself unto the Lord. I'm actually the blessed man in Psalm 1, if you will. I'm not the idolater or the hypocrite or the wicked person that we see here in Psalm 26. But again, David's not claiming sinlessness at all because he knows he needs the mercy of God. Again, we're going to see that in verse 11, but he's simply proclaiming that he's not guilty of taking part in these things that these other people, these wicked people are doing. 
So it's not bragging if it's fact, right? <laughs> David says, I'm, just, I'm not doing that. I've separated myself unto the Lord. Now, of course, David has sinned. We all know that. That's clearly recorded in Scripture. But here's the deal. He also repented of those sins, and you can read about that in Psalm 51. However, these accusers of his, whoever they were, they were still sitting in their sin, weren't they? They were still assembling together around it, the word says. In other words, they were continuing on in it. Right? David knows that they're mere mortals who are one day going to answer to God for this. Right? David had already repented. He was not continuing on in that sin. There's a difference. Today there's hypocrites who put masks on and cover up their true identity. We see all kinds of charlatan Christians in our world today, unfortunately. But on Judgment Day, all of the masks are going to be removed. Of course, that's where we get our, our word hypocrite from, right? It's, it's to be masked. But on Judgment Day, all the masks are coming off. The true motives, the intentions, all of the realness of our intent, it's all going to come to light. Okay, so David, what he's doing here is he's just simply calling a spade a spade, right? He's just calling things the way they are. David has already confessed his trust in the Lord in verses 1 through 3. And now he professes his integrity before men in verses 4 through 5. And so I wonder how many of us would be able to profess our integrity before men. Think about that for a minute. I'm not talking about in a prideful way. Okay, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying with an honest heart toward God. So what do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure there's most of us anyway would like to take back a few things from our past or maybe have some do-overs on some poor decisions that we've made in our past. Maybe there's even years from our past that we would like to get back. I don't know. But how much faster could we or would we have grown in the Lord Jesus Christ if we hadn't have taken that wrong turn here or there? Maybe if we hadn't let ourselves get influenced by the wrong people or worldly things or, or whatever. Okay, if we hadn't let things creep in and cloud our faith or even derail our walk completely, how much quicker could we have grown in the Lord and how much further would we be along in our walk with Him? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15.33. He says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You see, David is separating himself from these people. Okay, it's important that we understand this. Matthew Henry said this, and this is kind of a paraphrase of what he said. I don't have the exact quote, but to paraphrase it, he said, A friendship forged in sin will rightly end in destruction. So we've got to be careful as Christians. We have to be careful that we keep our integrity. Okay, and so David has kept his integrity. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, Many Christians can trace a lost youth or fruitless middle years to the bad influence of evil persons whom they looked up to and even envied at one time. And that is so true. So don't get lost in the bad company. Okay, Don't let yourself become engulfed in the world around you. Again, we are in this world, but we are not of it. Come out from among them and be separate. 
We live in this world, but we're just passing through. So we've got to live in a different way. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, Many people have a very strong desire to meet celebrated or important people, including those whom they disapprove. But I am inclined to think that a Christian would be wise to avoid, where he decently can, any meeting with people who are bullies or lascivious, cruel, dishonest, spiteful, and so forth. Not because we're too good for them. No, in a sense, we're not good enough. We are not good enough to cope with all of those temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all of the problems, which is an, uh, which an evening spent in such society produces. And he, he's exactly right. So when we separate ourselves from the world or from the things of the world, so to speak, we're not saying we're better than you. We're saying I'm too weak to get messed up in that garbage because I'm likely to fall. There's a huge difference. There's a lot of humility in this as well, but you got to be careful, okay? I like how Pastor David Guzik puts this in our context today. He kind of brings it into our current context. He writes, in the modern world, this idea takes on an entirely different dimension, in many ways unknown to King David. So he says, we choose associations in our entertainment, and we often choose very, very poorly. We allow the wicked to amuse us, then to be our examples, then to be our models, and finally our idols. David's statement here also applies to these kinds of contacts and associations. Absolutely, he's 100% correct. Not only do we need to know the wickedness that's around us and refrain from associating with it, right? We also need to know our own weaknesses and be able to remove ourselves from people or situations that might tempt us. That's a part of growing up in the Lord. That's a part of maturing, to know your weaknesses, know where you're tempted, remove those temptations, and, and make sure that you don't find yourself in any of those circumstances or situations where you might be more likely to slip and fall. We should all be able to say along with David, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, verse 2. I want to walk in my integrity, back in verse 1, because, guys, there is nothing like heaven a clean conscience before the Lord. Nothing like it at all. Look at verses 6 and 7. I will wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Now notice here that David's not claiming his innocence before his accusers as a badge of honor. Okay, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, I come before your altar, O Lord, with a clear conscience, so that, there's a reason for this, so that I can go tell people about you. I love that. But nothing will ruin your witness as a believer in Christ quicker than sin in your life. If there's visible sin, knowable sin, known sin in your heart, nothing's going to ruin your witness quicker. Nothing's going to devalue your words about Christ more than a walk without Christ. So if you're saying one thing and doing another, that's hypocrisy, and that's going to ruin your witness. You're going to lose your integrity, and so we have to be careful as believers. However, a life that is lived by faith in Christ, right? one like David is describing here, where your feet are on the path and your eyes are on God's love, that's, that's going to be super effective in reaching a world that's far from Christ. Okay, and we don't have to be perfect. God's not requiring perfection, but He is requiring humility and for us to use our brain. 
We know how to stay out of difficult, bad situations, okay? We should really engage our brain on some of these things and not put ourselves in places that we don't need to be, okay? There's plenty of stuff out there, including the devil himself, that would love to see us trip up and fall and ruin our witness. So we don't need to give them any help in that, right? So be smart, be wise. Verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And so this is great. David has now gone to the altar. Okay, he's gone to God's altar. He's gone to the place where God's glory dwells. And he's fellowshiped with his heavenly father there. He has loved the habitation. The word here means refuge. Zoe brought that up in her prayer. I love talking about the refuge of God. In his father's house, David found refuge. That's the word for habitation here. And that exactly is how he can say what he said back in verse 7, right? He said, I'll proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. How? Because I've been with you. I've been in your house, the place where your glory dwells, right? It's the glory of God. And the refuge that we find in God's house, surrounded by his people, Okay, who are also engulfed in his glory, by the way, that compels us to proclaim the good news about Jesus with thanksgiving. You see how all that works together? We find power to obey in the presence of God. We find the strength to endure in the presence of God. We find courage to witness to lost people in the presence of God. So what we learn here, believer, is that we must find our place of habitation, our place of refuge, in the glory of God. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if we want to dwell in the glory of God, then what that means for us, believer, is that we need to spend time with Jesus. That's where the glory is. Verse 9, Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. And so here David proclaims that, look, I don't want either the life or the death of the wicked. And I love that. That's a bold proclamation. And I think every believer should be able to echo that, right? Too many people today, or should I say too many professing believers today, want to live a life of the wicked or live a life like the wicked, but they want to receive the same death as the redeemed. No, that's not how this works, right? No, David said, Lord, don't give me either one, okay? Because please don't gather my soul with the sinners. No, give me mercy. That's humility. Lord, I need mercy. Without your mercy, I have no hope. And please also, Lord, don't give me their life either. I don't want to die and have their eternity. But moreover, I don't want to live like them. I don't want their life here, right? It's not the way I want to live my life. You see, David has been to the altar. He's been in the presence of God. And the truth is, the more of God that you experience, the less of the world that you will want to experience. David wants to be in the house of God, verse 8, the very place where his glory dwells. And many Christians today get this backwards, unfortunately. We want to dwell in the, war, in the world around us and then visit the church. We kind of get this backwards. 
David says, I want to dwell in your house, God, and then visit the world around me when I'm telling them about you. When I'm sharing the good news with them, right? I'm telling them about all of your wondrous works. Again, from verse 7. Look at verse 10. In whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. So David is referencing the idolaters and the hypocrites here from verse 4. These are the people that can be bought, okay? Again, we see plenty of fake preachers out there today who can also be bought. But David knows that redemption and mercy cannot be bought. He understands that. And of course, from New Testament revelation, we know that Jesus Christ purchased redemption. Okay, we cannot purchase it. Christ did. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7, and 1 Peter 2. But just like Peter, remember this story? We see this in the New Testament too, talking about people who think that God's grace or God's favor can be bought. We see a story in the New Testament about a gentleman who thought the gifts of God, in fact, the gift of the Holy Spirit could be bought. You remember this story from Acts chapter 8, verse 20. Peter told Simon the sorcerer, he was the guy who thought he could purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter told him, he said, you know what, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Wow. That is a bold statement. And it's so true because we've got to understand that no amount of money, no bribe whatsoever, no good deed, nothing, zip, zero at all can purchase the gift of eternal life for us. Okay, Jesus done that. And we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8. Verse 11, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. And so both redemption and mercy come from God, okay? And they're the only reason, the only reason that any of, a, any of us can walk in integrity because we ourselves, we have no integrity. In and of ourselves, we have no integrity, okay? We're lost. We need redeeming. We are sinners and we need mercy, okay? But when we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we, when we have been given mercy because of his cross, then what we can do is stand with David and say with complete confidence, verse 12, my foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Guys, the foundation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is solid. It is solid. It's a place where we can find absolute assurance it's a place where we can find complete confidence. And it's a place where we can find our balance. Okay? We're stable. We are secure. David says that it's an even place. I love the way he says that. Reminds me of that song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. All other ground is sinking sand, right? That's right. David said this in verse 1, remember, I shall not slip. And that's because why? He's standing on level, even ground. He is standing on solid ground. Remember, the wicked sit in their assembly. Verse 5. Psalm 1 tells us that they scorn, which means they talk arrogantly. But David is saying, I'll stand my ground against those who run their mouth against me. And I'll do it in the congregations, while I bless the Lord. I love that. 
as I bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord in the congregations. Christians, we need each other. We have got to have one another, okay? We are so much better together. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian out there, okay? Don't isolate yourself as a believer because we have got to have one another to build one another up in the body, build one another up in the faith. We've got to keep one another accountable. All of these things. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That's right. Remember, David's son wrote that, by the way, right? Solomon, he wrote that verse that I just quoted. Maybe he learned a few things from his old man. I don't know. But I say that we take this verse and we apply it to our context today, okay? The world that we live in. Think of how strong the church of God would be if we all locked arms, like for real. And we all stood by one another's side together on the foundation that we all have in the Lord Jesus Christ and we all stared into our Heavenly Father's eyes, the loving eyes of our Heavenly Father. And we together dwelled in His presence. Right? Remember that song? I'm thinking of all these old hymns now, but I come to the garden alone. Yeah. Well, no, let's all come together. Let's dwell in His presence together. That's important. We've got to ignore the voices of the mockers. We've got to get laser-focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. The days and times that we live in are troubling. And so we've got to have each other. We can't have the infighting. We can't have the dividing over secondary issues. We need each other. We need to stare into the face of our Father together. We need to dwell in His presence together. We need to sing together. We can sing this song of David together with our voices of thanksgiving, just like he talked about in verse 7. And then we need to go out and proclaim together the wondrous works of our God. See, it's a team thing. We're all rolling in the same direction. I wonder if we could do that, if we could put aside some of our differences as believers and really focus on the importance of doing life together, the importance of living for the Lord Jesus Christ in community, do you think that might possibly make a difference in the world that we live in? I think it would. I absolutely think it would. I'm not saying we're doing a terrible job. I'm just saying let's not lose focus, right? Let's not lose focus on the idea that we're better together. God calls us to be a body. Bodies have different parts that do different things, but they can't function well without one another. So we got to have each other. So let's not lose our focus, again, in the days and times that we live in that are becoming increasingly more troubling if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We've got to have each other. We've got to be there for one another. And so, psalms like this make me really want to walk with integrity, like David's talking about. It really makes me want to offer up that bold prayer of, Lord, examine my heart, try me, 
my mind, all of these things. Lord, the way I say it is, Lord, would you sweep out every dark corner of my heart? You know, I don't want there to be anything in me that's offensive. But also, we need to be looking at our place in the body of Christ. What are your gifts? What are your talents? How has God gifted you so that you can be a part of what he's doing in the community of Christ? And we don't want to neglect that. Okay, we don't want the church walking around with a limp. Okay, if everybody's doing their part and using their giftings, then many, many people can be reached for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He says, my foot stands in an even place, and the congregations, I will bless you. The even place is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to bless him together in the congregation. So again, have your quiet time. Enjoy your personal walk with the Lord, but please don't neglect living in the community of Christ together as best you can, right? Because that's where we're strong. That's where we're going to get fueled up. That's when we're going to get our tank filled up and we're going to be able to encourage each other in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and thank you so much for time in your word, for the encouragement that we find here. Uh, Lord, we thank you for David's prayer. And we just want to echo that prayer in our own life tonight and pray that you would examine us. There may be people here who have false accusations against them. I don't know. But there's probably someone here who is having some trouble, having some issues or some heartache or, or something of that nature. We live in a world that's very difficult. But Lord, prayers like this lift us up because we know that we have brothers and sisters that love us and, and care for us. We have a father who loves us. So help us to get focused in our walk. Help us to stay focused. Help us to keep our eyes on you to walk in integrity, but to walk and to walk by faith to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but, Lord, to, to find strength there, you know, to be able to encourage other people while we're there. Uh, it's amazing how you use your body to encourage one another. And when folks are missing, it's just not the same. We miss several people tonight here in our study, and it, it's just a little off. And so we pray for them, Lord, that they're, they're okay, that you'd bring them back. But we understand that it takes all of us. Lord, to be able to accomplish the things in this world that you want to accomplish. So help us to be there for one another, to strengthen and encourage, to convict and correct whatever we need, Lord, and we all need all of that at different times in our life. But help us to stay humble before you, to recognize our need for each other and our great need for your redemption and for your mercy. And we thank you for providing that for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, on his cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.